Hi, it's Diane. On my mind, the war in Ukraine and global diplomacy. Last week marked the year anniversary of Russia's invasion of its neighbor. President Biden traveled to Kyiv, rededicating support for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. But the focus on the conflict didn't end there. This week, the U.S. told China to stay out of it and warned of sanctions if the Chinese government sends weaponry to the Russian army. And high-level Russian and American diplomats met briefly at the G20 in India for the first time since the war began. David Rothkopf is a foreign policy expert who's worked on international affairs inside and outside of government. He joined me to talk about the U.S. role in Ukraine and how the war is affecting our relationship with China. David, the Secretary of State, met with Russia's foreign minister this week at the G20. What came out of that meeting? I'm not sure that a great deal came out of the meeting. There was an effort uh, to identify some issues and to maintain contact. Uh, and I think most Americans would be a bit surprised at the degree to which the U.S. is staying in touch with Russia, trying to define what the red lines are in this Ukraine context, uh, trying to avoid crossing them. So Secretary Blinken again mentioned Paul Whelan and urged Russia to return to the START Treaty, and Russia continues to lash out uh, at everybody. And I just wonder how useful those kinds of meetings really are. Well, look, I think there's a long history of maintaining contact um, with our adversaries, uh, even at low points in the relationship. Uh, we did that throughout the Cold War, and it becomes a way to diffuse things when, when they get particularly extreme. Candidly, I wish we were doing more of it with China than we are right now. And by the way, a lot of the responsibility for that is on China. But uh, having said that, you know, a lot of diplomacy is kabuki theater. People say uh, formulated phrases uh, over and over again because they're performing not for the person they're communicating with, but for a home audience. Uh, having said that, they also look to see what might be changing. Uh, I think Russia's recent diplomatic forays suggest a kind of a desperation associated with their poor performance in Ukraine. And having said that, I think the most interesting diplomatic development on that front was that before this meeting, uh, Secretary Blinken met with five Central Asian leaders all from countries that were once part of the Soviet Union. They had a kind of warm meeting and the United States entered into a new kind of relationship with Kazakhstan, uh, which is of course, one of the biggest and most important parts of the former Soviet Union. And that I think is good strategy. 
but it's also a thumb in the eye to Vladimir Putin, who is losing influence in his near abroad uh, because people see what he's doing in Ukraine is so dangerous. Well, a couple of things there. Again, regarding China, the U.S. is warning China not to get involved in Ukraine. How close is China to assisting Russia in Ukraine? Well, I I think China has assisted Russia by maintaining some commercial ties already, which has helped prop up the Russian economy. There is a concern that has been expressed by senior officials, including the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, and the CIA Director, that they might be considering providing lethal weapons to the Ukrainians. Uh, But having said that, they haven't done it yet. Uh, It's not clear that they've made a decision to do it yet. And what we've heard are um, ideas like they might provide 100 drones that have a certain limited weapons capacity. That's not going to be decisive in all of this. And so what they may be looking for is a way to send a message to the Russians, uh, like we're here, we're still your allies, um, but to also send a message uh, that there are limits. And I know the United States government and our allies have been engaged in major multi-front diplomacy with the Chinese saying, you don't want to do this. You don't want to get involved. You don't want to become uh, essentially a collaborator in the war crimes of the Russians. You will end up with sanctions. You may end up with worse than that. The Chinese are very cautious. They're very self-interested. And so uh, that's why, you know, we're over a year into this war and we haven't seen them do that so far. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of U.S. government officials in the past couple of weeks, uh, and I, I think they still think it's possible that the Chinese will not help the Russians in a material way. This morning, um, David Ignatius said that President Biden should speak with the top leader in China. Do you agree with that? Very strongly, I think David made a good case. The reality is um, there's almost no major issue that you can think of in the world today um, that doesn't involve the interests of the U.S. and China and wouldn't be better served if the United States and China were at least in communications about it, whether you're talking about a pandemic or you're talking about climate or you're talking about arms control you're talking about North Korea, you're talking about resolving issues around Taiwan and the South and East China Seas, you're talking about Ukraine. Um, And during the recent uh, uh, kerfuffle about the uh, uh, Chinese uh, surveillance balloon, one of the things that frustrated senior U.S. officials was their inability to get a hold of Chinese officials uh, for the kind of military-to-military contacts that are really designed to to avoid escalation, accidental escalation in these crises. And so I think there's a general desire that that be fixed uh, because the stakes are just too high for it not to be. You're saying there is no red phone on the White House desk 
directly to China? Physically, no, but also uh, metaphorically, no, in the sense that when a senior official from the NSC or from the, the Department of Defense tried to get a hold of the Chinese, Chinese weren't picking up the phone. Interesting. I also found it really interesting yesterday that an intelligence report came out saying that Havana syndrome, the sickness that many in U.S. embassies around the world were experiencing, was not uh, caused by some outside nation. Was that a tip of the hat to China, which initially had been accused, especially as far as Cuba was concerned? Uh, whether it was or not, I think withholding information about what we knew about it uh, was done to sort of maintain tensions. And I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which there are forces in Washington that want to see the U.S. and China as enemies, not as rivals, but as enemies. Um, and, it, and you know, there, you, as you well know, there's a kind of uh, what I what I call the enemy industry in Washington. You know, these are people who, for the past eighty years, have said, "This is the threat. We must spend hundreds of billions of dollars to address this threat." And when the Soviet threat existed, they overstated the Soviet threat in order to justify overspending. When the Soviet threat disappeared, they took several hundred people, essentially living in caves, some of them destitute, which is to say terrorists. And they said, no, this is an existential threat, the same as the Russian threat. And, you know, we spent 10 or 20 years spending hundreds of billions of dollars trying to address that. I'm not saying China's not a threat, uh, uh, not a, a, an important rival. It is. But I do think there is a push uh, among some in Washington, both in the defense establishment, the media, and so forth, to bring us to the edge of a new Cold War with the Chinese. Why? Well, as I said, first of all, it's in the economic interests of defense contractors, because they then say, well, we need an 800-ship Navy. Uh, we need to build more F-35s. You know, we need to do all of this kind of crazy stuff. I, I, on the other hand, um, I, it is politically popular in the United States to identify the Chinese as an enemy. Uh, not too long ago, a poll was done. Uh, I think it was an AP poll. And something like 30, 40% of Americans already define China as an enemy. And another 30 or 40% say they're you know, uh, very unfriendly. So you've got three quarters of the American people already thinking China is our new foe. Uh, and so for politicians, uh, it's an opportunity to, you know, tap into that. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, you know, there, there is a sort of a tendency to use it in a game of gotcha with whoever's in the current administration. Oh, you're not doing enough. You're not being tough enough. Um, and uh, so... You know, self-interest for all of the people involved, whether the politicians or defense contractors, but it is the kind of thing that can push us 
to the edge of conflict, uh, which is something that is certainly not in our interest or China's interest. Do you see a division between Republicans and Democrats on that very issue? Not as much as you would think, not as much as there is on some issues. You know, the far left and the far right are pretty aligned on this. They don't want to have anything to do with China. They don't want to trade with China. They see China as an enemy. Uh, some people see Chinese as stealing jobs or focus on Chinese who are stealing intellectual property. Others see it as a military threat. In the center, there is a kind of vaguely more sensible view a little more nuanced view. Uh, but, you know, you watch the media, you don't see much of that because it's not popular. It doesn't make for good TV to say, you know, China's a rival, but not an enemy at this point. China poses a threat, but it's very limited. And China has never actually been an imperial power has never sought to conquer the world. Uh, we need to put pressure on China, but there's 70,000 U.S. businesses doing business in China, and our economies are completely interconnected. Uh, you know, talking to you, I, you know, that's why, you know, your conversations with you have always been so great because you could get into that. But you know, on, on most uh, cable news shows, you would get clicked off halfway through because they're like, oh no, that's not interesting, you know. Nuance is not that compelling. Now a quick break. Hi, it's Diane. Join me for my next book club event on Wednesday, March 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll talk with Michael Crummy about his new novel, The Adversary. Find out more and register at dianereen.org slash book club. And we're back. Here's the rest of my conversation with David Rothkopf, CEO of the Rothkopf Group, a media company producing podcasts, including Deep State Radio. Last week was the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Biden went, surprise visit. How would you assess the accomplishment of that visit? I, I would assess the accomplishments of the visit as comparable to John F. Kennedy going to the Berlin Wall and saying, Ich bin ein Berliner, or Ronald Reagan going to the Berlin Wall and saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Um, you know, it is Americans standing with European allies uh, at the frontier with Russia or the Soviet Union saying, we stand together, we stand strong. Um, I, I think there's no way that Vladimir Putin a year ago thought that's where we'd be. There's no way that he thought it would be Joe Biden walking in the streets of Kiev and not him walking in the streets of Kiev. Uh, and so I think the other thing that lifts the Biden trip, besides the optics, 
the courage that was involved, the historical context, is that they've been so successful for a year, that they've built the alliance, that Finland's on the verge of entering NATO, that Sweden will soon follow them, uh, that uh, the, the, the allies have put up tens of billions of dollars in aid, uh, that uh, the Ukrainians have been so good. And, and with regard to the U.S., that Joe Biden has managed to put together a bipartisan group supporting unprecedented aid, uh, military assistance to Ukraine, all of which uh, has led to uh, serial Russian defeats, setbacks, uh, and or stalemates. But the one thing that Ukraine did not get from President Biden was a commitment to the heavy weaponry he's asked for. How long should President Biden hold off on that? And what do you make of the reasons given for withholding that equipment? Well, first of all, we're giving much more heavy equipment than we thought we would be giving a year ago, that you know, we're now giving tanks the Germans are giving tanks. The British are giving tanks. Uh, long-range artillery has been really important. Uh, increasingly, long-range missiles have been important. Uh, we don't talk about the work we've done with them on electronic warfare, on jamming the Russians. been super important. We don't talk about the aid we've given them from an intelligence perspective, maybe even more important than these other things uh, added up. Uh, right now, you know, we, as the narrative switches, so a month ago it was tanks, and now it's F-16s. Um, you note that the president, you know, a month ago would say, we won't be sending F-16s. Now he doesn't say that anymore. Um, and, you know, at some point or another, he's going to get there. But going back to your very first point, with regard to Russia and communications. Um, I know from talking to senior officials that the U.S. talks to the Russians, trying to sense red lines, trying to avoid problems. They did, of course, as we know, when Biden took the 10-hour train ride, they talked, right, so that there was not an accident. One of the things the Russians have said is a red line for them is missiles that can strike deep into Russia. Uh, and an arbitrary length or distance uh, of range on these missiles uh, has been set at something like 300 kilometers. And uh, so, you know, you, there's a kind of weapon system called an attackum, which is a deep, uh, uh, you know, penetrating kind of long distance system. And I don't think you'll see the United States give those to the to the Ukrainians anytime why soon. Why not? If, in fact, what the Russians are doing is to decimate the civilian population and their habitat, why shouldn't the Ukrainians have the same capability? Well, I, I think the calculus is that, you know, Russia will lose this kind of protracted conventional ground war, but that if this were to escalate to the use of WMDs, all bets are off. And it would also be destabilizing regionally. 
And I think, therefore, they, they've been respectful of these red lines. Now, having said that, I agree with you. You know, every time the Russians set a red line, we've subsequently crossed it and nothing has happened. They do a lot of saber rattling. Um, and uh, uh, frankly, um, in my view, you know, I think it'd be a terrible mistake to get to the end of this war and have come up one or two major weapon systems short of a victory, you know, and then this ultimately produced massive sacrifice didn't get us to where we want to go. So, you know, I hearken back to the Powell Doctrine, you know, where you say, if the United States is entering conflict, you're going to use overwhelming force. And I think um, my own sympathy is towards giving the Ukrainians whatever they need and giving them a little more than they need, not a little less than they need. What do you see as leading us to an end point? Does this ultimately come down to discussions and mediation? Ultimately, but we're nowhere near that now. If you talk to a senior U.S. officials, they'll tell you, you know, the Russians are, you know, we want to keep everything that we've got, and we want Ukraine to be disarmed and not part of NATO and not part of the EU. Well, none of that's going to stand with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are, we want everything back to the 2014 borders. Well, the Russians are not there yet. And so we're in this contest. Um, and essentially, the point of the contest is to change the position of one side or the other. The Russians, I think, are playing to tie. If, if, if Russia can keep the 20% of Ukraine they've got and not give it up and continue to devastate Ukraine for a couple of years, they think ultimately Western support will fade and the Ukrainians will be forced to come to the table. I think the Ukrainians are playing to make unexpected gains against the Russians that all of a sudden put the idea in their head that if they keep doing this, they're actually going to start losing ground, right? So whether that's going striking south towards Zaporizhia, or whether it's making new offensives in the east, uh, or whether it's going into Crimea, if Ukraine can make one or two or three big breakthroughs, then you know some at some point they think the Russians are going to say. Oh, that you know the the arrows pointing in the wrong direction on this thing. Better you know blow the whistle now, and at least we'll be able to gain something out of it. We know how many Russians have been lost. I mean, yes and no, right? There are estimates that are in excess of seventy thousand, and there's some estimates that are well above a hundred thousand. What we know is this, though, and I think this is the significant fact, that in all the wars that Russia has fought, small and large, since the end of World War II, and that includes Afghanistan, Chechnya, their forays into the Middle East, etc., um, they, have, they have lost fewer people than they've lost in a year in Ukraine. Um, devastating for them. And uh, we used to say Afghanistan was Russia's Vietnam. 
I think it's Ukraine. It was said at the beginning of this conflict that once Russian soldiers were dying and their mothers saw those body bags, that they would turn against Putin. But it seems that the longer the war goes on, the more support Putin has. Or am I wrong? Well, I don't know that you're wrong. I don't think we've seen you know mass demonstrations that you might have thought you would see. But Russia's a authoritarian state, and anybody who participated in demonstrations would get arrested. Um, uh, the Russian economy has been a little bit better at weathering this than was anticipated. So that kind of pressure that we thought would be on them was not um, was is not there. Having said that, Russia has not been able to raise the number of troops it thought it was going to be able to raise. Perhaps as many as a million Russians have left Russia. You know, there has been a massive brain drain. I was talking to a guy who's the CEO of a high-tech company, and they had an office taking advantage of some of the high-quality Russian technical thinkers out there, and they moved it to Belgrade because everybody was leaving Russia. And certainly you've also seen some people speaking out against the war, including some surprising ones. You know, the uh, the head of the the Wagner group, the you know, sort of mercenary military group, uh, has been bad mouthing the war and he's super close to Putin. Uh and you know, there was a there was a, a subway dedication in Moscow this week, and that was a big deal. And Putin participated via a video feed. You know, in other words, he's super paranoid about being in public. And that's a sign um, of, of, of lack of confidence. Do you see any end in the near future to no. this war? No. I mean, you know, everybody says we've just marked the one-year anniversary of this war, right? It's not true. We just marked the nine-year anniversary of this war. Um, it began in February of 2014. Uh, it was just escalated in February of 2022. Uh, this is going to go on a while. The Ukrainians are doing a lot of talking about 2023 is the year. But on the other hand, what are they going to say? It's not the year. You know, they, they, they've got to they've talk that way. So I wouldn't anticipate it anything happening soon. But watch the late spring. There's going to be some offensives. And if somehow the Russians screw up in a big way, it might tilt the tilt things. Well, let's hope for the best. Thank you so much, David. Always great to talk to you, Diane. That was David Rothkoff, CEO of the Rothkoff Group, a media company that produces podcasts including Deep State Radio, which he also hosts. And that's all for today. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email, drpodcast at wamu.org. 
Our theme music is composed by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. The show is produced by Allison Brody. Our engineer today is Adrian Danhauser. Thanks for listening all. I'll see you next week. I'm Diane Reed.